and welcome to Technicast. This is Morag here. Today we've got a slightly different episode for you in light of the recent events. As many of you will know, Techno's Congress this year was cancelled due to industrial action taking place at the University of Brighton. So I'm kicking off this episode with an interview with Luke Beasley, who gives us some fantastic insights into the reasons behind that industrial action and the situation at the university in general. Following that, we'll hear from the rest of the Technicast team. Edwin has produced a segment which sheds some light on the precarious situation of the arts and humanities in higher education in general. Felix will tell us a bit about Techne and its role as an arts and humanities funding body. Izzy will take us through some of the online activism and solidarity taking place around the industrial action at Brighton. And Olivia is going to tell us about some recent wins made by the university and college union. At the end of the episode, you can hear the whole Technicast team come together for a discussion. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Luke. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, Marak, and yourself? Yeah, really well, thank you. So I wanted to start by asking you if you could kind of talk a little bit about what's been happening at Brighton specifically and how that kind of led to the Congress being cancelled. Sure. So towards the beginning, middle of May, if I remember correctly, there was quite a surprise announcement from the university's senior management team who uh, called, as I understand it, a large number of staff into several department or school-wide meetings and said that we've got some quite serious financial problems here and we're going to need to make some of you redundant, in fact, quite a large number of you redundant. Uh, The initial number that was floating around is, I think, somewhere around 120, 125 then told about 400 people that they were in the pool for redundancies. I hope not too many of our listeners have been through a redundancy process, but generally what happens is you're told that you're at risk and then you wait for several weeks and then they tell you if you have uh, if you have to walk the plank or not. It's an incredibly kind of disheartening experience. It became quite clear early on that two quite strange things were happening with this. So the first of those was that the people who'd been told that they were at risk were disproportionately in the arts and humanities, as opposed to other fields. And it also came to everyone's attention that while there may well be serious financial problems at the university, it wasn't just the case that, you know, the money has run out and we're going to have to, you know, we're in desperate straits here. The university was continuing to pay very large amounts for basically real estate projects including one which was effectively the equivalent of the amount of money they said they needed to save through through getting rid of these people. And so there was a, a, a kind of a process of what's called voluntary redundancy, which is where if you're working somewhere and you don't really want to keep working there and they want to cut jobs, you can find an arrangement, right? Basically, people give you some money to go away. And remarkably, actually, quite a lot of people took the university up on that offer, which I suppose tells its own story, but still not quite as many as as management had hoped for. So around 80 people, I, as I understand it, have now agreed terms to, to leave the university kind of under their own steam. But there was still an insistence that, that 25 people would have to go, whether the university liked it or not. There was, as I'm sure you would understand, huge response to this, both from the workforce, who many of whom at this point did not know if they were going to be in a job in a few weeks or not, and by students at the university, both 
undergrads and postgraduate researchers like me who found ourselves at risk of losing our lecturers, losing our supervisors, being forced into increasingly large and unmanageable class sizes or, or seminar sizes and losing a lot of the the kind of direct support that we'd really made use of in furthering our own studies, our own research uh, and enriching our own time at the institution. That took uh, a number of forms, initially an occupation of the senior manager's offices. I don't know whether they're undergraduate or postgraduate students. I, I don't ask too many questions about these things, but that lasted for a, a little while until um, a fire alarm mysteriously went off and people were forced to evacuate the building. It has taken the the form of of large street demonstrations in Brighton, but also demonstrations targeted at uh, events where the university seeks to kind of get some more money and get more students through the door. So open days, um, I believe there's some coming up at at graduation shows and and, and things like that. And more recently, uh, an indefinite strike has been announced by uh, the University and Colleges Union branch at Brighton which effectively means that the academic year will not begin until and unless those redundancies are are, are revoked. Management have, late last week now, announced uh, to the 25 people that they're laying off that they will be laid off, or that that's the, the intention now. I don't have the full list of names, but as I understand it, that kind of disproportionate pressure on the arts and humanities has remained. I believe they make up a a very large number of those those people who are left. The line from, from staff at Brighton is that just because management have made a decision that these are the ones they want to go doesn't mean that these people are going anywhere. There will continue to be industrial action. There will continue to be grassroots pressure on management to revoke that, to tell these people that they can stay in their jobs. And from what I see from where I am and the people I'm talking to, the students have remained wholly behind that. So there are lots of mutual aid and solidarity actions organized by students in support of striking workers at the moment. There's a strike fund to which I know I, I myself and, and other students are, are giving as much as we can and also trying to fundraise for. So we're really in a position at the moment at Brighton where the lines are very clear. You have the university community on one side who want to protect and preserve what's in many ways quite a unique learning environment at Brighton, where we do have things like research-led teaching. There is a certain amount of autonomy for researchers to design, you know, how they work together and things like that. And, you know, trying to protect the community, which makes that possible. And then on the other hand, you have quite a kind of vicious and unhearing attempt by the senior management to just basically ruin people's lives, right? (laughs) To to knock 25 people out of work, to not really think about what the consequences are, to not really think about what what, what happens kind of three steps down the line. Like they don't seem to have a plan for this. Um, And that's that's where we're at at the moment. And it's a a bit of a Mexican standoff. Absolutely. And so within that context, I guess the Congress going ahead would have been very, very difficult, right? I was talking to people the other day about um, the idea of kind of strike literacy in this country and, you know, how many people kind of understand what a picket is and what it means and the history of that. And um, we were kind of talking about the idea of the picket line crossing it is, of course, breaking the strike. And I imagine there would have been a lot of students who would have been left in a really difficult position of not wanting to miss out, but also not wanting to cross that line in solidarity with the people at risk. Yeah, so I think the first thing to realise, and, and this kind of maybe points to how difficult it would have been, is that had the Congress gone ahead in Brighton, I'm almost certain there would be no one from Brighton at it, because that would be perceived as doing something which provides the university with 
prestige, perhaps even money. I'm not sure about the charging relationship is there, but provides, you know, the university management with things that they want exactly at the point that they're trying to take away our learning conditions. And for those of us who work at the university as well, also our, our, our working conditions. There were also a large number of techno colleagues from other institutions who would have felt incredibly uncomfortable uh, turning up to the the congress event some for 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 moral reasons and reasons of solidarity you know as as you outline that you see people who are being really put through the meat grinder on this and you don't want to do anything which is against their wishes some of them for just very very practical grounds which is we've seen attacks on the arts and humanities and other universities and if it happened to them they wouldn't particularly want anybody else undermining their struggle either so for those reasons i think it would have been kind of very poorly attended i think it would have been unnecessarily contentious now i i was in contact with with techne about this not the, the congress particularly but about the situation because i was i and another number of other brighton colleagues were really worried about losing our supervisors and going like well what what happens then you know um and so we we were talking to to techne and they said to us that we wouldn't like to hear this, but they can't pick a side. That's not their place. And I completely understand that. And I think they also realised, the Technic Directorate and the conference organisers, that hosting the Congress at Brighton would look like picking a side. So I think they're just being very consistent there. They can't come out and say, well, you know, Brighton management needs to do something different because that's not their place. But they also can't come out and say, well, everything is normal because that would just be doing the flip reverse of that. So I think they're they're playing this with a very straight bat. They don't want to come down and say there's a right and a wrong here. And it would have been impossible to stage the Congress without doing that at this time. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think it was the absolute right course of action and very um, even handed. So that was really clear and useful. Thank you so much. Can I just ask if people listening to this wanted to do something to kind of get involved or be helpful to the struggle in any way, how would they go about doing that? So what I would suggest with anything like this, whenever there's a a strike or an industrial dispute, what have you, then I think the action has to be led by the people who are taking that step. You can't kind of step in and, and you know, save anybody else. People people sort disputes out as themselves. So I would keep in touch with, if you use social media or if you uh, use mailing lists or what have you, uh, keep in touch with the, the union branch. That, that's Brighton University UCU. I believe they're available on all of the socials. There's also a student solidarity organisation called University of Brighton Solidarity. So check them out as well. Keep an eye out on what they're doing. If you're in the Sussex area, there will be information about uh, protests or actions kind of circulating by those guys before anybody else. If you want to show support materially, you could email the vice chancellor and the senior management team and just very, very politely say that the course of action they're taking is damaging for students in the short term and the long term. And you urge them to get back and speak to their staff about ways out of this because they're refusing to do that at the moment. You know, return to serious negotiations with the union. If you have uh, a spare fiver kicking about, and I know very, very few of us do, uh, there is a strike fund as well. If you Google University of Brighton, UCU, uh, you'll find the blog and there's a, a link to the fighting fund in there. But again, I mean, I think everyone appreciates that times are really, really tough at the moment and it's going to be a, a small number of us who can do that. But any pennies that can be donated are very gratefully received. Amazing. Well, this has been so helpful and informative. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Zooming out from the situation at Brighton, it is clear that humanities are in a precarious position in UK higher education. 
Humanities departments seem to suffer dramatic cuts with increasing regularity, from notice of 52 compulsory redundancies at Goldsmiths in 2021, to the threat of 140 job losses at Birkbeck in 2022, to over 30 proposed cuts at the University of East Anglia this year. And it should be said that not all of these threatened cuts have actually transpired. Some jobs have been saved due to industrial action and negotiations between staff and university bosses. But what's driving this predicament? And what is the state of UK humanities? When announcing these rounds of redundancies, university management often refer to financial difficulties and point to the impact of COVID in some cases. Going further still, a small group of vice-chancellors recently told The Guardian that the funding model for UK higher education is broken, citing the cap on tuition fees and newly announced limits to international students on top of rising costs caused by inflation. But what about the humanities specifically? Are there any trends that we can identify? A study by the Higher Education Policy Institute in 2021 and reported in the iNewspaper found that the number of humanities students had fallen by 40,000 in 10 years. And between the academic years of 1961-1962 and 2019-2020, the proportion of students taking humanities subjects fell from around 28% to 8% of overall students. This suggests that the policies of the current Conservative government are not entirely to blame for the slump in numbers. However, a report by the Higher Education Policy Institute earlier this year observed that the government's research funding strategy appears to, quote, downplay the position of the arts and humanities in the UK's ambition to become a science superpower. And that last phrase was used by Christopher Daly in the 2022 HEPI blog post about the state of the humanities. And indeed, the government has prioritised STEM subjects in its funding of universities. Needless to say, this isn't a STEM versus humanities thing on our part. Clearly, a thriving higher education sector and society needs a marriage of both. One thing we often hear from critics of the humanities is that the employment prospects of humanities graduates are poorer than their STEM counterparts. The government has targeted what it calls low-value degrees, threatening to reduce the funding of degrees that don't provide good employment outcomes and represent a good investment for the taxpayer. This announcement triggered a wave of humanities bashing from right-wing commentators who automatically aligned low-value degrees with humanities degrees. Another HEPI report by Gabriel Roberts debunked this notion, however, finding that humanities graduates are just as likely as graduates in other areas to be employed, and when subjects are ordered according to the average of salaries of graduates five years after graduation, humanities subjects fall in the middle of the range. So the picture appears mixed, it is certainly not a given that humanities degrees represent low value to the graduate or the taxpayer. Far from it. And in a sense, the humanities seem to be ensnared within a broader culture war between those who imagine universities as centres for learning for its own sake and those who fixate on their potential for driving economic growth. We can only hope that future policy decisions acknowledge the immense benefits of both humanities and STEM degrees to wider society. So, Techni. Techni is a doctoral training partnership. That's what that DTP acronym stands for. And these are new funding and training entities set up over the last 10 years. Techni accepted its first cohort in the year 2014-2015, based on a period of five years of funding. And that was then extended to another five years in 2018-19. So next year is the final year of that cycle. These DTPs were set up 
in response to a shifting academic landscape and later on a full review of social science PhDs by UKRI, which is UK Research Innovation. So this is the government arm which deals with research. Um, within that, the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, is effectively one of nine departments. So the key points basically is a focus on uh, training, and that's why the extra six months from 3 to 3.5 was included. Uh, collaboration and uh, employability. It also meant that there was a diversion of master's funding to the PhD structures, and they also removed the stipulation that candidates had to have a social sciences master's degree. Techni during this current funding cycle funds up to 57 studentships per year, which works out at around eight uh, students per institution on average. However, this is obviously not always the case and they're not always evenly spread. Varies as to whether they fulfill all of them. Uh, I took one year, which is the most recent year uh, listed on the Techni website of students, 2021-22, and there were 54 listed that year. And of those, the highest was Royal Holloway which is also the lead institution. And Royal Holloway is where all the admin is based for Techni. There are nine institutions in total within the DTP. Royal Holloway had 14 students and the next highest was Brighton with eight. Then we had the kind of bigger London unis with Kingston, Brunel, uh, Roehampton and Westminster between five and seven. And then Loughborough and the University of the Arts with three. And then Surrey with two. While this does fluctuate, uh, this is perhaps a useful illustration of how these resources are spread around. So you have the steering group, which is the overseeing element. Um, that's made of senior management from the different uh, institutions, and they meet twice a year. Yeah, then you have two groups dealing with more granular decisions. The management group, running of things on a day-to-day -day basis, including the allocation of studentships. And then you have the training group, which oversees the training development programs that we do, including the congresses. There's a few other things, um, including the group of partners, but most mechanisms that involve the students go through the home institutions. So that's Techni. Hello. So I'm going to be sharing with you some of the online activism and social media solidarity groups that have formed in response to the proposed redundancies at Brighton. I'm pointing you towards some resources so you can stay up to date with the situation as it unfolds. Uh, one of the main indicators of the scale of the campaign against the redundancies has been the online vote of no confidence in the University of Brighton's Vice-Chancellor Deborah Humphreys and her senior team, which returned an overwhelming majority of 94% no confidence among staff and students who voted. And there are lots of social media groups and pages that are formed to support staff at Brighton, as well as update people about the ongoing situation and share news about upcoming action. Many of these have been set up by students at the university. So I'll run through the ones I've found now and we'll put them in the episode description as well. So on Twitter, we have at Brighton Exiles and at Save UOB Hums. On Instagram and Twitter, we have at PGRs underscore Brighton and at UOB Solidarity. And UCU's branch at Brighton is at Brighton UCU on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also follow the hashtag Save Brighton Uni on Instagram and Twitter if you'd like to as well. So the group UOB Solidarity, uh, which is a coalition of Brighton students, have also posted some really useful links in their Twitter and Instagram bios with ways you can support the cause if you'd like to. They have a link to the change.org petition to stop the redundancies, a link where you can donate to the UCU Strike Fund, 
and there are letter templates addressed to the Vice-Chancellor and various deans of the university, so that if you're a Brighton student or even a parent of a Brighton student, for example, you can use these templates to write to university management, expressing solidarity with striking staff and asking them to reconsider the redundancies. Uh, and just lastly, um, doing this research, it's been so encouraging to see that staff and students from universities around the country, uh, not just at Brighton, are putting out messages online showing their support for Brighton staff. And I think this really highlights the fact that what's going on at Brighton is really part of this countrywide crisis in higher education, arts and humanities uh, that we've been speaking about today. I think that when we're in the midst of ongoing strike action, there's value in reflecting on recent wins. So I thought I'd summarise some of the more recent wins and resolutions at UK universities that the UCU have listed on their website. In March 2023, after five years of discussions and negotiations, University of Bath UCU signed a collective agreement on anti-casualisation with the University of Bath. This involved a commitment to offering all graduate teaching assistants who teach 0.1 FTE salaried employment contracts rather than hourly paid contracts. They also made the standard fixed term contract for two years or more, ending the use of one year contracts to cover teaching. March 2023 was a month of several other wins too. The UCU declared another big win against casualisation when Sheffield Hallam University agreed to move associate lecturers from zero-hour contracts to fixed-term contracts. In the same month, the University of Cambridge finally agreed to recognise UCU after having been one of the only UK universities not to recognise them. This recognition means that the union will now be able to engage in formal negotiations with management at Cambridge as well as offer members paid time off for essential union activities. At Falmouth University, management created a two-tier workforce by employing new academics on inferior contracts through a subsidiary company rather than directly through the university. In June 2023, the almost year-long disputes between Falmouth UCU and the university over this two-tier workforce came to an end when management agreed to bring on-campus academic staff in-house employing them directly through the university and therefore allowing them access to the TPS, one of the education sector's leading pension schemes. These successes demonstrate the variety of work currently being undertaken by UCU and its local branches, from fighting against casualisation and for job stability and security, to defending pensions and to continuing to build the union itself. Well, thank you for your contributions, everyone. It's a difficult topic to get a real grasp on because of how complex it is. But I think that it's important that we try and reflect as as much as possible. My main takeaway from when I was looking at this is a, a sort of slightly ironic fact that a lot of research has gone into looking at civic engagement and political engagement and actually uh, people who study the humanities are far more likely to engage in political and civic action and, and that's not just resistance that's in terms of access uh, using services um, responding to community programs these sorts of things so I think that is perhaps the most um, telling reflection of just how important you know the engaging with humanities is because it makes us consider all sorts of social issues 
the one point with Techni that I didn't get onto was a point about the shifting, the shifting kind of sands of uh, research at the moment. And it's one of those where the setup of these organizations, these DTPs is in response to the way things are changing, but it appears that they're just not responding quickly enough to, you know, the other things that we're seeing around with uh, the examples you made, um, Edwin, and of course with Brighton. Um, and one problem with that is the kind of the cohesion. It's great that we have this um, collaborative nature, but it takes such a long time to get these things together. The obvious example being uh, football, obviously, when you look at the way that club teams and national teams work. We had two of the best players England's ever produced in Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard. And within their club teams, where they were in there consistently, they were able to fit very well within the organisational structures. They had a clear role. But then whenever they came together uh, with England, uh, you know, very limited time, um, not very often, uh, it was much more difficult to get these things together because they had to, you know, try and find a way through uh, negotiating their individual circumstances. And so I think these DTPs have great potential, but actually when you're trying to come together from so many different institutions with so many different ways of doing things, uh, it is quite a difficult um, process. I don't know how you guys um, feel about the current situation, but do please uh, chip in. Well, I wonder, would it be too cynical on your first point to say that's precisely why the government devalues humanities, because humanities graduates are more likely to engage in civic activity, which is not something the government probably want on the whole, is it? And also humanity students are much more likely to do things like critique policies, to critique British history, uh, to other things that the government would prefer to steer us away from, I suppose. It works on two levels, I suppose, for me, two levels of concern. One is that the individual concern about, you know, future job security and precarity in a devalued humanity sector. And the other is just a wider, without sounding too pompous, a wider concern about a society that devalues the humanities and the critical thinking that entails, I suppose. So there would be two, my two main concerns, I think. Mm. I think my main concern is um, where do we go from here? Because I think in the context in which the government is kind of committed to marketizing higher education, people said when that decision was taken, this would be the consequence that universities who aren't you know the red brick universities will come under huge amounts of pressure and might you know sorry i'm really struggling to articulate my point here i, I do have one point that kind of related to that morag which might prompt you so the the government is you know attempting to respond to certain things and there's regulations which you know They've put a cap on tuition fees and they've put a limit on international students. And whether you agree with those things or not is is one thing, but it means that funding streams uh, for universities are limited to, let's say, more commercial uh, endeavours. And that, again, is a, is a problem because they either have to, you know, like you said, marketise themselves or they have to go out of business. Mm, exactly. And I, I just think humanities is a place where someone might be able to say, hey, maybe some things shouldn't be markets, some things should just exist for the for the point of being, <laughs> for, because they're good and useful to society. And um, I think that is, as Edwin was saying, particularly terrifying to our particular government. I think it's kind of funny... I think the marketization of universities has been kind of a double-edged sword, though, for the government because it means students feel like they have more of a right to complain or to strike, like students who are 
were studying during COVID and feel like they haven't got like a certain level of education that's prompted them to become angry because they're now kind of consumers of education rather than, I don't know, rather than something else. So in a way, the marketization has kind of made, I think, students feel more empowered to say something if they feel like they're not getting a level of service from universities, which is bad, but it's interesting to see that kind of dynamic. Do you think it means that universities aren't seen anymore as learning institutions? It's just a stepping stone to a career? I think for some people, yeah. And I think that's there's probably like a level of privilege in that, like who gets to just like learn for the sake of learning anyway, and then who needs to see university as a stepping stone to employability or to a career. And that's, that's I think, one of the most frustrating things, I'm sure for a lot of people, is that like there should be value in just learning for the sake of learning. And it's it's difficult to have to market like your research interests or what you want to learn about or study for the sake of getting funding or being like valued within the university into funding bodies that is frustrating I also think that it kind of I mean I know we've been talking about higher education but I think the whole sort of culture that we have of kind of funneling middle class children through the university system kind of starts really early on because you know at school you're sort of taught if you want to study the humanities or if you want a kind of like high paying job like you have to go to university and that's what you have to do and you know this this conversation links into lots of other conversations about not funding apprenticeships not encouraging students to do you know pursue other other avenues of education that aren't degrees because they've kind of been turned into this sort of whole pass to like middle class professions and that just devalues a lot of other kind of work and a lot of other kind of education that people are taught from such a young age isn't a kind of valuable life path for them so yeah I do think while while obviously we're situated in the higher education side of things like there's a discussion that's also kind of goes way back into other earlier stages of education that has to be addressed as well about where these ideas are coming from yeah I I totally agree and I think uh, that is also indicative of the fact that it's a very complex picture where it's interwoven into other social things, but it's taking away universities' abilities, especially from a humanities perspective, to change those things about society. Where, you know, if you look historically, often these centers of learning were really essential for big social progress developments. Does anyone else have anything they want to uh, chip in? Um, can I say something positive just to inject some optimism? I just got a good piece of advice from a real life academic with a whole career and stuff at a conference recently because we were speaking about the kind of situation and the sort of state of the humanities and also the strikes and the marketing assessment boycott and she kind of I think saw my concerned face and just said as a bit of advice to an academic who's early in their career um, which obviously I am she just said you know it's really important to participate in these discussions and to support the cause and to have these conversations but there's no point spending your whole, you know, PhD journey just completely kind of paralyzed by anxiety and fear and speculation of what the future of your prospective job market might hold. Because you know, the nature of this situation is that the landscape shifts so constantly and the struggles that our lecturers and our supervisors are facing now might not be the same ones that we're facing. And yeah, I think that there's something to be said just even from a self 
preservation perspective of, you know, supporting the cause, having the conversation, but just not allowing yourself to be sort of deterred and um, become kind of like despondent and demotivated because that's what they want at the end of the day. You know, they don't want us to go into um, higher education jobs and they don't want us to be having these conversations in a kind of like public setting and to build our career on fighting for having a career that's not defined by precarity and exploitation like so I think that we kind of owe it to ourselves and everyone else to sort of not stress too bad basically um and I was glad that someone like said that to me because it's it's so easy to get kind of bogged down and think like this is just going to get progressively worse and what's the point completing the PhD and trying to have a job in academia but I think I think we're doing I think we're doing the right things so chill is the is the headline maybe just for us <laughs> for a bit possibly okay well thank you everyone and as Izzy said, do keep having these conversations. And while this was a sort of one-off, if there are major developments like this, we want to make sure that we acknowledge what people are going through. So this is something that, you know, we, we will definitely consider doing again if something particularly big happens. This was, of course, uh, because of the cancellation of Congress. But I think regardless, we were all aware and concerned about what's what's happening in Brighton. So if there is something happening at your institution that you feel you would like to discuss, then do please get in touch with us. But otherwise, take care and I will pass you back to Morag to round everything off. Thank you for joining us today for this unconventional episode of TechnoCast. We'll be back in a fortnight and returning to our usual format to kick off our new theme, Narratives of Nation. And if any of the themes of today's episode speak to your research, please do keep an eye out because we'll be releasing a call for papers related to work and labour in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Take care.